Welcome to your mandatory wellness session. I'm your host, Anoop. And I'm your other host, Samir. Samir. It, we're, we're finally caught up in the timeline. The timelines have aligned. We're <laughs> all caught up from our series of redundant episodes. We've yes. reached the present. I mean, admittedly, we're now going to be thrust into the past because we're not going to edit this one for a while. <laughs> right. Well, no, but I, I think it'll be better, right? Because the last two have been like seven weeks after the fact because of that, the one episode jump. Right. And this one will probably only be like four weeks after the fact. <laughs> exactly. So exactly. it's better. So it's better. Well, we won't discuss anything topical, uh, a lesson that we failed to learn for many, many episodes. Yeah, like literally we... all the episodes. So every yeah. episode, we're like, we won't discuss anything topical. Hmm, what's the current holiday, Anoop? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about Valentine's Day. <laughs> <laughs> okay, no topical talks. Yeah. Samir, how are you doing? Uh, yeah, I think uh, reasonably, I would say. I think I'm doing reasonably, yes. I was, uh, I was recently editing an episode... I think in which I said I'm doing okay instead of my standard not bad, and you know what? I think I'll I think I'll up it to reasonably today. Oh, okay. So reasonably is above okay. Yes, it is. Well, so I, this is key to figure out. Where do you sort of rank these in, in a kind of a like like numerically? Like how would you order those? Right? Because I I feel like obviously it depends how low you want to go, right? Because you could say like one is like terrible, but you could also be like tragic or you know like I'm not sure where you, you want to like set your lower limit. I think is a first key. This is a this is a one to ten. I'm assuming. Yes, yes. My gut instinct is actually to dip into the negatives here and set the lower limit because we're so specifically talking about like it is bad, right? So negative makes sense in that context, right? Yeah, that's fair. So then zero would be like a net neutral, like I see. But but that's but no one ranks them. Like no one. I mean, you're right. I, I I totally get what you're saying. Like that is objectively, it should be something like negative ten to ten. Right. Zero is neutral. It feels very mathematically correct. But I mean, that's just not the society we live in. But this is different, right? Because we're not talking about rating a thing, right? Like, if I was rating a book, it's hard to be negative because no matter what, you have experienced a thing. You have done something, right? It could be terrible, but it's still a thing. So it's like, you're almost reading, like, how much has this book added to my life? No matter but what. what. If, I mean, so, I don't know. Like, sometimes you can take away from your life. But that's pretty rare. It's <laughs> like if fine. a book really sucks, you're just like, fuck this book. And then you're like, I'm moving on with my life, right? <laughs> yeah, but yeah. whereas when you're rating a day in your life, it's like, if this was a really bad day, most days, <laughs> it's probably going to be negative. Troubling. 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 <laughs> Hey man, turns out 2021, not markedly better than 2020. Yeah, yeah. It's one more, but that does not mean one better. Yes, exactly. Which is why it should be negative. We should have, <laughs> after 2020, we should have been like, this year sucks so much, we're going back. And this should have been 2019. You only get to move forward with the years. It's like it's like the promotion committee. You only get to get like promoted up if you've actually like achieved something of value. Right, exactly. Yeah, it's like, we met our duty requirements for 2020, but I don't know if we've fulfilled all the requirements for promotion. So I... Have we achieved the, the necessary milestones? Right, right. So I'm saying this is 2020, 2020, 2020, Ooh, brain aneurysm. <laughs> <Oops>. <laughs> 2020, 2020, 2020, brain aneurysm, my favorite year by far. Yeah. <laughs> what I was going to say is 2020 again, <laughs> but my brain don't then... work no more. <laughs> Classic brains. Okay, fine. So I guess we'll say we'll 
I guess for the scenario, we'll say we'll say negative 10 to 10. And so then what, what's our zero? Like, okay? Or is okay above zero? Well, okay is the answer I give most often. So to make a use of the spectrum, and if we, we assume that there's like a Gaussian distribution, right? Then I think okay would exist over zero. But as you just pointed out, with me saying most days are bad, maybe that Gaussian distribution does not center over zero. And in fact, depending on your level of sort of optimism or pessimism, right. that distribution is shifted to either side. Yeah. No, is this true? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, so I think what is, what's tricky with the word okay, actually, is that it is, I think it's actually very tonal in how, it, like what its meaning is. And someone's like, oh, how are you doing? You're like, well, okay. That's, I, I think that actually is genuinely a, like a, a zero. It's a neutral. But if you're like, uh, okay, that's not, clearly not neutral. (laughs) It's clearly worse. Samir, we're getting into a fundamental problem here with natural language processing, which I think we can all agree is what this podcast is about. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Is that tonality can fundamentally shift the meaning of a word. It's true. It really can. So, okay. So, uh, so I said reasonably on this scale, I think I'd put that Definitely into the positives. Okay. Uh, what what would we say is a 10 on this scale? Like, terrific? But the problem is for me, and this is just, a, I guess, a personal pathology. If I said terrific to that question, I would for sure be being sarcastic. Okay, but that's tonality again. <laughs> it's Let, tonality, let's, right? <laughs> let's remove tonality from the the equation. Where it's, if, if you were saying something sarcastically, then it's essentially throwing a negative on there. That, right, sure. That's, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, that's, yeah. I, that's actually probably a good rule of thumb. Yeah, the sar- sarcasm is an instant negative for the thing. Yeah, yeah. and uh-huh. it actually works perfectly because the better the word is, if it's terrific or awesome, but you're sarcastic about it, it's the worse you're implying your day is going. For, exactly, right? yeah. It's, it's like, like oh, well, today is awesome, man. It's fantastic. You're like, oh, man, that guy's having a really shitty day. Like, <laughs> true. It's, it's really true. Well, so I, I think what's also very difficult about this is that I am now actually having a really stark realization about myself, which is that I don't think I've ever used um, an extremely positive word to describe my emotions, and I meant it sincerely, which is troubling. Well, yeah, I, I don't think it, you know, it, it doesn't take a person who closely listens to the podcast that to understand that maybe you and I have trouble with sincerity. <laughs> yeah, but it's just crazy. I was like, I don't think anyone, anyone's ever been like, oh, how's it going? And I've been like, awesome, and meant it. Because even if I actually feel good, I would never say that. I'd be like, oh yeah, no, I'm 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 doing pretty well. Like yeah, I would yeah. never I would never actually use a superlative like terrific or awesome or like superbly or whatever, you know. Yeah. It's almost a word that you can only deliver sarcastically. I think, yeah. That's hmm, interesting. Okay. Well that's yeah, that once again, I think this is very much an NLP kind of thing. So we'll we'll move past it. Okay, so I guess given that scenario, what what would you say is a ten? Like would it be something like like, yeah, no, I'm I'm doing really well. Like things are going great right now. Is that like a ten? Yeah, I mean, I have described things as awesome before. No, but I've I've described things as awesome. Right. I'm not, ta- I'm not talking about things. I'm talking about like when someone's like, "How is it going?" Different. If you're like, "Oh, how was that movie?" I'd be like, genuinely, I could be like, "Oh, it was awesome." Like I would I would for sure say that very sincerely. Mm-hmm. But if someone's like, "How is it going?" Like, "How are you feeling?" I don't think I've ever said like awesome and meant it sincerely. I think maybe great is as high as I go with yeah. sincerity. Oh, I'd yeah, say it was pretty great. So fine. So, so something like great for your 10. So I feel like reasonably at that point, it's got to be at least like a four. Yeah, okay. It's pretty solid. Three, three or four. Yeah. I but see, so. here's the thing. If if a great is a 10, if we use, because great is a thing that I've used before. 
Yeah. I'm thinking of it as a Gaussian distribution. Right. right. It's so, so like, rare. An actual 10 would be incredibly rare. Yeah, I mean, it's tricky, of course. A Gaussian distribution is continuous. We're more, mostly using this as a discrete. Plus, there's no there's an actual endpoint. Gaussian distributions, by definition, are like infinite. So it's tricky. It's like a truncated normal distribution, sort of a discrete analog of it. It's 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 tough. Right, right, but, right. And fundamentally, this podcast is about statistics. <laughs> statistics and natural language processing. We've been very clear the entire time. <laughs> I mean, it's in the description of every episode. Don't go back and check, but it's there. But it's there. It's there. Yeah. Uh, okay, so yeah, I'll say reasonably. Think things are things are solid. Okay, yeah, they've been better, but I think on on net, I feel I feel solidly. How about how about you? How's life? Sort of unrelated question, but have you ever felt like if you started crying, you would never stop? <laughs> I have not felt that way. Mostly because just um, I, I figure that at some point I'll run out of uh, fluids. But um, oh, that's a good point. Anyways, yeah. <laughs> I'm doing okay. Yeah, sure. Wow. Yeah. Nice. Cool. Uh, yeah. Good. Glad to hear it. Okay, so that's that. That's at least a zero, if not positive. <laughs> could certainly could be, certainly could be. That's oh, raining in here, isn't it? Weird. It's weird. Oh, it's raining inside of this localized rainstorm in my apartment. Yeah, no, it's, it's some crazy weather these days. What with the polar vortex? I don't know if that's related. It might be. Is there actually a polar vortex? I don't I live th- in a place with snow anymore, which is fantastic. Neither do I. But from what I heard, so this is very tricky because. I, I often uh, don't watch the news anymore um, because it's uh, deeply depressing uh, mm-hmm. and makes me hate everything. So uh, I get my news uh, via random snippets that I overhear in the hospital, which means it's likely wildly inaccurate. Sure. Um, but I did hear someone discuss something about a polar vortex recently, and apparently it might be affecting other parts of the U.S. as well. Not like snow, but like cold, even in areas that are historically not particularly cold. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, maybe that could be happening or it could have already happened because once again, this is in the past. Or it could be about to happen. We don't know. What's happening right now? Yeah. Who can can say? Yeah. Who can say? What a time. Time is a funny thing. Time is a funny thing. Yeah. But I was actually going to ask you, beyond this running out of fluids due to crying so much, which certainly I think is is a fruitful subject for research, you were recently... In the COVID ICU, not like as a patient. I realize that sounds bad. You were recently in the okay, COVID we ICU. Gonna, this is an issue. Uh, a brief aside, which is you know the whole podcast. But anyways, um, I uh, this is a problem on dating apps that has occurred to me on many occasions, where it's like you know somebody hasn't closely read your profile or even noticed maybe what your job is, and you'll be like, oh yeah, I was in the hospital. And they're like, oh no, what happened? And you're like, oh no, that's I go there all the time. i'm deeply ill yeah yeah right no yes i've yeah this has come up before right 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 as it were yes not as a as a guest i was in the covid i see as a guest (laughs) oh what a truly awful word choice i love it okay continue (laughs) okay all right yes sorry continue your question. So you were you were in the COVID ICU uh, working as a worker, as uh, as as working does. Obviously, normally your job is not working in the COVID ICU, as you are a radiology resident. But I believe we had discussed that. I, I th- you, you had volunteered actually to work in the COVID ICU, like not like volunteered outside of your work day, but like as in like they wanted you know residents or or they needed additional workers to basically fill the role because there was like a massive surge of COVID cases in the last couple of months. And you volunteered to do that. And I think as far as I know, you just finished working there, like pretty recently, right? 
Yes, relatively recently, I finished uh, a brief stint in the COVID ICU. Just to to actually make this slightly topical, we're right in the middle slash, I'd say on the downslope of a big surge in Southern California. So that's why I was working in the COVID ICU, essentially. As you said, they needed extra staffing. Uh, yeah, so I spent two weeks uh, working as a semi-intern to resident in the COVID ICU. Yeah, it was a very interesting experience. There are a lot of things that you intellectually know about COVID. Uh, just being in medicine, right? You you know how stark the statistics are. And unsurprisingly, tale as old as time, uh, it's very different once you are seeing those statistics played out in live action. That makes sense. Right, right. I mean, you know, you'd have crazy room turnover in, in the worst way possible, of course. Like, I, I literally had a room that turned over three times in the course of 24 hours. Yeah. And I, I imagine from your tone, these weren't floor transfers. No, no. Well, the, they were transferred to this floor, and then very shortly... Oh, well, I meant they, the, the turnover wasn't occurring because they were transferred. No, they died. What, what, what are we doing? <laughs> yeah, yeah, all right. Yeah. Okay, yes. Yeah, a high fatality rate. Essentially, it, it's it's sort of an unstable equilibrium, right? It's like yeah. once somebody does pass away in a room, the people who get moved into that room are by their very nature probably very active. And active people just have a higher tendency of dying. The uh, You know, you'd think that would be the depressing part of it. Like, oh, these people dying. But really, it's the people who have been there forever that are really depressing. Because it's like, mm. they're just, uh, I mean, stably dying. You know, they, you, they're not getting any better. They probably will pass during this hospitalization. But they're not passing anytime soon. And it, it's a lot of conversations with the family. The bleakest part of it is definitely those interactions with people because it, just across the board, we're not allowing visitors. So really discussing that with people, they, you know, people will say like, oh, that's unreasonable. And I'm like, is it? I mean, is it super unreasonable to keep people like your family member is dying from a thing that is communicable? <laughs> like, Yeah, I, no, of course. I mean, yeah. yeah why, I mean, why would you sp- spread the tragedy throughout more of the family? Although, of course, there's the emotional devastation of having a loved one die without anybody around like i, I turns it. out the justification does not make people feel any better yeah of course not i mean why would it yeah in a very real way and the fact of the matter is when your loved one is passing away you're not exactly at your most reasonable you know people are willing to take risks and a lot of these people they're like well we all just got it you know that's why this person right. got it is because the whole family got it sure which is fair actually yeah which is fair which is fair but it's still so yeah. difficult to see. I mean, you know, at least once or twice a day, you'd have a crying family in the like aisles because we would let them be outside of the room. Oh, that 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 I actually didn't know. Yeah, yeah. So we'd have we'd have them come up and it'd be like one person at a time can be outside of the room, look in. We could set up FaceTime so that they could like see each other. But you know, a lot of these patients are intubated and intermittently sedated, so it's not like they're really seeing anything. But you know, it was difficult. Yeah, I, I felt I really felt for the chaplain services because they obviously made yeah. the rounds a lot, uh, unsurprisingly. And, and uh, they were on high heavy duty, just providing sort of religious support. In a way, our end of life care had drastically improved from the last time I was on ICU, but in the worst way possible, of course. It's like we should have been better at end of life care before this. Yeah, before end-of-life care was happening hourly. Yes, exactly. And 
we've had more support on both the physician side, nursing side, all of that. I do think the residents tend to get a little overlooked in that whole affair. But at the same time, they've narrowed our spectrum such that we're not like regularly going into the rooms. We're much more there for like managing the patients when the attendings and fellows aren't around. Sure. Because the the attendings and fellows are covering many more patients. So it's kind of like we cover the floor. And like I said, a lot of these people are stably sick. So they're not like actively crumping at any point in time during the day it's more about just a general decline until we know that like hey they're not coming off this ventilator they're not returning to a baseline level of functioning like and talking to the families about what they want to do if there's a lot of phone calls a lot of phone calls every day you have to call every family essentially to give them updates right which is not necessarily a thing i struggle with i mean i I, like I'm okay talking to families, but it is a lot emotionally to just essentially deliver multiple sets of bad news every day. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, talking to families is different from like talking to families. Like those are those are different. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Sorry. It's not like talking. Oh, like, hey, here are how things are going. It's like it is here are how things are going. And by definition, they're going bad. Yeah, of course. Like, I'm totally fine giving patients and their families updates on like our overall hospital plan for them when they're like post-op day three and are probably gonna get discharged in a couple days like that's fine but it's harder to be like oh yeah um your loved one um you're not gonna see them again because they're gonna die but but before that happens there's gonna be a week of them getting slowly worse on a ventilator so yes yes and it's very difficult to explain what dying is to people i think that's the the hardest part about it Hmm. is that Everybody has a very skewed definition of death because people don't think about it. I mean, it's not like a concept. We all do it, but very rarely do people think about like, what does it mean to die, right? What does it mean to to be dying, more importantly? Because people think of it as this dramatic thing, right? You get shot in a movie, you have a heart attack in a movie, right? Because this is the context with which we experience death in our day-to-day lives, right? They don't think about, like, dying doesn't mean that they are dead. Dying doesn't mean that we're doing chest compressions. It just means that, like, hey, they're not going to get any better. It's a game of probability. Like, we can... This is a bleak semi-joke. I don't even really think it's a joke. It's just a a fact. We can keep people dying for a while. Like, between the the oppressors and ventilators and all this stuff, you can keep somebody in the state of, like, passing away for weeks to months you know you can always add another presser until you can't uh you can always up the ventilator settings but it doesn't mean that they're gonna get any better it doesn't mean their mental status is ever going to improve it doesn't ever mean they're gonna walk out of this hospital so explaining to somebody that like hey yes they are currently stable but they are fully stable because of things that i am doing and they're not going to get any better it's very difficult and then explaining that miracles don't happen is also super hard because it also fundamentally requires you to acknowledge that miracles don't happen which is a deep and bleak realization that you'll never be the same like you, you can't just walk around life normally after that and i, I think it's, it's so interesting to hear from you because i mean i both of us have um similar i'd say like religious and spiritual outlooks which are that uh, neither of us is uh, religious at all and yet i actually totally get what you're saying 
which is very much the sense of, I mean, I, I, I don't believe in miracles. Like from a conscious standpoint, if you like ask me that on a test, I'd be like, no. But I, I do think no matter what, there's a small part of you that I think always wants to believe that something resembling that could occur, right? Not that like it's going to happen by a divine intervention, but like, oh, we could do all these things and save this patient, right? And I wouldn't necessarily call it a miracle, but in some ways it's almost like a scientific miracle. Like we can do everything and somehow bring it back because this person was so healthy. Like they were fine. Like how could we not be able to And the realization that at some point um, there there is an end of the line? If we, if we divorce it from sort of the religious context, because miracles obviously have the religious context, but I think... Everybody, as you just said, to some extent believes in miracles. They believe in their own sort of narrative miracles, if you will. It's like where the story takes a turn for the better, because that is the way that stories are told, right? This is brief aside, but whatever, this whole thing is is an aside. Is uh, There's this movie called Me, Earl, and Dying Girl. It's about a girl who has cancer, and it's one of these classic movies where it's like very sort of irreverent and sad kind of somber movies indie movie it has that classic indie movie vibe yes yes. uh and i think at the beginning of the movie he says that she won't die during the story and then towards the end of the movie spoiler alert she does die and he's like look you wouldn't have watched the movie if i told you that she did die at the end even though like that's the title of the movie you know that she's dying uh Mm. he's like you just you wouldn't believe me you wouldn't want to see this movie if it was just about her dying there's more to the movie after she does pass, but the whole point of it is just that in reality, when somebody is truly like passing, dying, no matter how slow that process might be, there is a very good chance that they won't get better. And that's the game we play. And it's really hard to tell somebody that it's like, it's not that I'm saying that they are going to die. It just says that most of the time, if we play this game out, they will die. If you gave me 100 patients that were exactly like this patient, 99 of them would die or 90 of them or 80, you know, however many you think it would be. So many of these same guy played out a thousand times will die. So that's what I'm saying. I'm not saying that they will die. I'm just saying that probability dictates that they will die. Which is, is a classic right, issue of things like probability and um, prognosis and... Um you know, rates of remission and overall survival and all these issues within uh, medicine, right, are probabilities are based on population. And at the end of the day, when you're discussing this with somebody, you have one person in front of you, right? And for and, and for that one person, it's binary, right? And I think that is why, right, everyone always imagines they're on the tail of the distribution. It's like, oh, well, if you look at the Kaplan-Meier curves, there's that one person who, like, is going way out there. It's like five, six, seven, eight years, and somehow they're still, like, they're still recurrent free survival. That's them. That's the guy. And everyone wants to believe they're going to be that person or that their loved one will be that person. And um, obviously the, the whole reason that that person is an outlier is because that that's basically nobody. Yeah. The thing I struggle with is the concept of telling somebody that they won't be that person. A lot of people will respond to that. Well, saying that if there is a chance then I would feel bad for not trying, right? Which is, yeah. And depending, I mean, we could talk about the evils of the American medical system all day, every day. But there is a cost to continuing to try. Uh, Not necessarily everywhere, not necessarily every time. Sometimes, depending on your level of insurance and stuff, like, that might not be the case. But 
there is also an emotional cost to continuing to try. That that I think is also I, I was going to say like beyond the like the systemic standpoint of like spending millions of dollars to keep an eighty year old with COVID alive on a ventilator, I, it, it, that's not smart. I mean, that's just not how you should be spending a limited resource, regardless of medical or healthcare system. I mean, that just that just doesn't make any sense. But then I think there's the emotional toll as well, both on people who are providing care and um, the family of that person. You know, I think it's, I don't think it really serves anybody. And I, of course, it's, I think it's different when you, it's, these, these, I think these conversations are always different based on context, right? I mean, when it's a younger person, I feel like everyone is almost more willing, both on the healthcare side and the family side, to push a little harder to go for a little more of a Hail Mary, right? 100%. 100%. And so I, those conversations are always different, right? I mean, if, if, if the, the, the 42-year-old on the ventilator who has three young kids is also may not actually have a great prognosis, but... I think both the family and the um, care team is a little more willing to um, convince themselves that they will be the outlier. Right. Well, and, and the fact of the matter is young people do get better. Yeah. And I, I mean, to be clear, I mean, they do have a better chance in, on average than the 80-year-old. I mean, obviously. But I mean, a better chance may still be a really, really poor chance. Yes. Yes. Too true. Too true. So, so I'll narrow it down just because we could talk about death and dying all day. And sort of the effect that that has on people, right? But from a resident perspective, there's a thing that you realize when you spend some time in the COVID ICU and you spend some time dealing with these very, very sick patients, where a lot of the conversations that you have about ethics and uh, and death and dying and patient interactions, all of these things that you have during medical school that, for the most part, are pretty much an afterthought. Like they're, they're, they're added on, you know, you're there to learn all the science and you're there to learn all the medicine. And then they have a few lectures about ethics and patient interactions and all this stuff. And, and individual medical schools are better or worse at it, depending on their own curriculums. But it, it's always the extra part of your curriculum. Like we're here to get you a good grade on step first and foremost, and then you'll be a good person and doctor that's secondary, far secondary, <laughs> um, to, to their overall mission statement. And that's possibly the heaviest indictment I can give the medical school system. <laughs> but I think most people don't believe that they'll ever need to use those skills for the most part. Like, or the context in which they will need to use them are so few and far between that they'll never need to be good at them. Yeah, I was gonna say, I, I actually don't even think it's that. I think it's just so, when we are doing that stuff, it's so divorced from what we're, like the context in which we're going to be using them that I think it loses some of its meaning, right? Like when you're a first year medical student learning about like medical ethics, you can't exist five years in the future where you're a second year in the ICU having that conversation with the family. Right. I mean, that the, those the, they're both you, but they're five years apart. And the five year, it's such an enormous gulf in terms of who you're going to be and what you're going to be doing that although that's a, I think it's good that we learn about that stuff, but I, it's hard to even, it's hard for it to sit with you when you don't have the context of what that's going to be. And I, I don't know exactly how, I mean, yeah, that, that is the nature of medical school, but at the end of the day, I feel like learning about lung physiology, yeah, that actually probably still, you know, I feel like you can, you can apply it a little more directly um, when it, when it comes time to apply it in, in the few years. And I feel like the things like the medical ethics and, um, the ability to have these difficult conversation. I was learning about like the spikes protocol, the stuff, you know, I, at the end of the day, I feel like you, you, it's very hard to, 
um, put those into action all those years later when like when you originally learned them, you didn't have the context in which to place them. Right, right. And, and the physiology, the science of it all, you reinforce over and yes, over again. this is true. But fundamentally, most people will not deal with tragic cases on the daily, you know? They won't deal with it on the weekly. They won't deal with it on the monthly. It'll happen every once in a while that they deal with tragic cases. You know, we have our ICU residents and ICU fellows and things where it's like, yeah, they have a preponderance of dealing with this stuff. But even then, it's not as much as you think it would be. It still happens a lot, but not as much for those critical care residents. And now we exist in a time period where it happens daily, at least that you're having these difficult conversations and you're having to flex those muscles of like really thinking about like ethics and bioethics and what does it mean to continue to provide care for somebody? Uh, and is it ethical to continue to provide care to a person who will never improve? And when does your care become torture kind of because you're keeping somebody alive who will has no chance of ever living thereafter? You know, those heavy questions, you don't have to think about them most days. And so they don't get reinforced. So you end up being about as good at these things as you you are as a person, pretty much. Like, it has very little to do with your medical education and just has to do with who you are on a day-to-day basis as a person and your abilities to cope with these things and, you know, cope with other people's sadness and, and explain things to people who are struggling to understand something and maybe can't possibly understand it. To bring it down to the level of sort of resident wellness the effect that that has on a person over an extended period of time and yeah there are people who maybe are listening to this who are like he did two weeks and he thinks he's such a master (laughs) thinks he knows everything about this i'll give that caveat that it's it, it is a very i have a very privileged position of having only dealt with it for two weeks but you can see how that would wear away at a person how that would really stress a person out how that would take away how you perceive the world i mean that case example of like there's a difference between not believing in miracles and knowing that miracles do not happen right there's a there's a difference between those two things and there's a difference between how you could perceive the world thereafter i don't feel broken by my time in the covid icu by any means but i could see how somebody might be after doing it for months on end right i could see how that would be emotionally exhausting that was actually the most warnings i got about it from people who were in medicine was not that it's like oh it's not that difficult the medicine's not that impossible it's just emotionally exhausting to be there for that amount of time and i could definitely see how that would happen okay i guess two two things the first is will there be an opportunity slash are you going to be in the covid icu again two did you have other other friends who had also the same thing where they had spent like a, a couple weeks because, you know, basically a non-medicine or, you know, EM or whatever person who decided to spend a couple weeks there to help out. Okay. I'm about to go off a little. So we're going to, we're going to play. This is uh you actually tapped into something that I'm very, very mad about. Oh boy. But, oh, okay. Well, that was not my attention. Let's yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, so first of all, maybe based on need, I may or may not go back to the COVID ICU. I have more. So the reason they asked me as interventional residents, we do critical care rotations anyways. So I was essentially just reallocating some of my critical care rotations to doing this. Right. Sure. That makes sense. So, that's so, so it, it, it fits within your education plan without like, t- right. Right, right. The thing that I'm about to go off on is 
I was with a surgical intern. Uh, nice guy, anesthesia prelim. Uh, he's doing, he was doing a rotation there. He was doing four weeks in the COVID ICU, uh, intermittently pretty much by himself covering a lot of patients. This guy had like no critical care education really before being there. This was his critical care portion of his surgery intern year. And he's just like dropped into the COVID ICU and intermittently told to take care of eight patients at a time. He was very, very good. Like super chill dude, really nice guy. Uh, and clearly like I caught him on the tail end of his four weeks in the COVID ICU and you could tell he learned a lot, but I'm just like the ethics of first of all, having him cover those patients alone is pretty messed up. But then the sort of mental health aspect of it, like, damn, that must've been exhausting. He seems to have tolerated it pretty well, but I could imagine a world in which he did not tolerate it pretty well. And the sort of stress of that would have been pretty difficult. In addition to that, this is the thing that I'm mad about. They had a lot of, like, attendings coming in to pull on shifts as an intern, essentially. So they'd come in, write notes, call families, maybe. Apparently, the residents and interns on. We did a little better job about updating families, because every time I would come back from a day off where an attending covered by patients, the notes would be garbage and the families wouldn't be updated. I'm not saying, I don't know what they were doing, but maybe it wasn't their job. And the thing that I'm mad about <laughs> is they were also getting paid a lot of money to do it. They're getting paid like hazard pay and, and coming in to do these shifts because the, uh, these are a lot of attendings whom whatever specialty they're in are maybe not getting covered. There's not a ton of work for them to do in their, their individual specialties. So they come in to cover the COVID ICU and they get paid a ton of money and barely do their job well. Meanwhile, the surgical intern's here doing it for the amount of money that a surgical intern makes for four weeks by himself covering intermittently eight patients who are very, very sick. There's no compensation for that. There's no, there's no pat on the back. Oh, sorry, there is a pat on the back. We did get a, a metal pin uh, that described us as COVID-19 warriors. Oh, uh, well, okay, well, then it's fine. All right, well, then I, I, I well, why are you complaining? Okay, well, this is kind of embarrassing for you to be complaining after that. Would I have rather received thousands of dollars uh, in additional pay for doing a job that I wasn't trained for? Maybe, yeah, that'd be nice. <laughs> <laughs> the ethics of this whole thing, I mean, I think we talked about early on when they were, like, bringing in med students early to cover the COVID. Yeah, we ICU. did. I, I, it was actually one of our very earlier, but I want to say maybe episode two or something around that time was, I think it was a discussion that we had about several hospitals in New York, because this is when New York was getting just absolutely demolished and the rest of the country had not really felt the effects yet and discussing what was happening with like residents not getting hazard pay and discussions of bringing med students early and all this stuff that just seemed really not okay. Right, right. And I don't know, across the board, maybe there were some institutions that were giving hazard pay to residents, but the vast majority have not been. And then you know, just recently, I, we talked about this on the podcast, but like we have the troubles with vaccine rollouts in residents. And now we have, admittedly, it is much safer now to be covering these COVID ICUs than it was at the beginning. You know, we have more PPE, we have more protection, but still you are essentially coercing a resident into covering a position that they never intended on covering because it's part of their training. Like, I volunteered, whatever. For me, it's like, I knew what I was getting into. I chose to do it. I don't care. You know, that's fine. But after volunteering to find out that, like, yeah, you volunteered 
this other person's getting thousands of dollars to do this job that you volunteered for. The only reason we asked you to volunteer is because you're a resident and that's a thing we can ask for. Like, they, they never asked the attendings to volunteer, of course. Although, interestingly, there was a thing that was happening in New York originally where they were asking physicians, like out-of-state physicians or physicians in other part of the state, to um, volunteer to work in COVID ICUs while paying travel RNs and similar sort of like, um, I, I'll, I'll group them into like support staff, although of course, obviously ICU uh, nurses are like a really key part um, of ICU care, but having them pay like absurd levels of hazard pay, which I mean, at the answer, I mean, they're obviously putting themselves at great personal risk, so sure, but like, you know, um, tens of thousands of dollars and then like asking attending physicians to like volunteer to do it, which also felt um, like a very intentional choice to kind of use this sort of um, hero complex and sort of hero complex slash like this way that we're trained where it's like well we're should we should be above asking for like hazard pay because it's like we're doing it to help people right 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 that was also a thing i don't think i'm not sure how much of it is a thing now it certainly was early in the pandemic which i i, I know certain several people were not very happy about that it was really a, a clear choice by these hospitals to try to like encourage slash mildly coerce people to do it for free right right and this is not like a an indictment of nurses or whatever that that like that was clearly an example where you use two separate groups who are doing two separate jobs and you say like oh well we'll pay this group because there's already a, a framework by which you get traveling nurses to come cover positions, right? Yes, yeah, so they're just using the framework that already exists. You can't really br- blame the nurses for taking that pay. They no. should take that pay. Like they absolutely like. Yeah, I mean, if if, it, if that's available and you're a, you know you're a young healthy nurse and you feel willing to put yourself at an increased risk for that opportunity for pay, I mean, yeah, they're offering it. I mean, you're not going to negotiate right. down. So a hundred percent fine, right? Yeah. Here we have two people doing the same job. Yes, one of them is an attending physician and the other one is a resident physician. But they're not acting at they're not acting in the role of an attending. They're not acting in the role of an attending. Yeah. They're acting in the role of a subpar intern oftentimes. But that's that's maybe me editorializing a little bit. <laughs> Turns out once you're an attending for a certain amount of time, you really can't be an intern again. Even now, I feel like a couple of years into being a resident, I feel like if you threw me on one of those difficult services, I mean I'm sure I would manage it, but I would be worse probably than I was at some point in intern year. Right. And that is not like an indictment of them. They don't need to be good at those things. Like that's, you know, they have interns for a reason. So they don't have to do that stuff. Right. Right. Because their normal job is being an attending where they use like their brain and experience and knowledge and whatever to like make broad and like long-term medical decisions that kind of shape the overall path of a patient. But that's not what they're being used for here. And yet they're being compensated like they're being attendings. Yes. And at the same time, the intern who is also doing a thing that he was not there to do this guy i'm using him as an example it's a surgical intern anesthesia prelim he's not here to take care of covid patients in a medical icu he would never do this rotation they can claim like well it's your icu rotation he was supposed to be doing sick you like let's not pretend that it's the same as taking care of eight covid patients versus sick you where it's yeah. like uh oh, manage somebody's like vp shunt or whatever like it's totally different and he gets nothing these attendings get paid so much ridiculous severe and and i think medical education and residency has a lot of unethical practices 
I think it doesn't hold up to sort of ethical rigor. And and some of those practices are somewhat necessary and some of them are not necessarily integral to the proceedings, but we, you know, we have a long road ahead to changing that. But this is just so obviously bad and frustrating to me that they can't figure this stuff out, that they can't do the right thing or or that they won't. They pro- I mean, you know, in reality, are they going to pay residents a bunch of extra money to do this job? No. Could they create a framework by which they're like, there's something, something there? Well, so I'll say as a separate point, to residents, depends on your residency program, what's allowed and whatever. But like residents can, if, if they're like generally allowed to, like they can moonlight. Yeah. And for that, they get paid higher rates than they would if they were just like a resident like, like a resident hourly rate if you calculate it it's like 10 bucks an hour or whatever it is like 10 15 bucks an hour but if you like moonlight it's like a lot more depending on what you're doing like maybe even like you know, like 100 bucks an hour or something like that maybe more and um so that framework exists for paying residents more if they're doing things that are outside their normal residency work and i realize that is different than them working as a resident like working their resident hours or whatever and they're just doing it in a setting they weren't originally doing but I'm just saying there is some sense of a framework that exists there. And I think, you know, although unusual, admittedly, having a global pandemic, also unusual, I feel like adjustments could have been made. Um, but once again, I think as with many things we discuss on this podcast and, and otherwise, it is often easier to put additional work on residents because there's no bargaining power in general. And two, because it's a captive labor force, they, 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 there's no real ability to say no. Right. And the beauty of it is if there was a bargaining, if you tried to say no, everybody would claim that you're lazy and you're not doing a good job or that you're a bad person. And reference previous episodes where literally people have said that about residents for not wanting to do some ethically dubious job, right? Like, or reference, I don't know, teachers who say like, hey, I don't want to go to school if I'm going to catch COVID. And everybody's like, they're lazy. They just don't want to do work. Like, it's a tale as old as time. If you try to say that your working conditions are not safe, people will call you lazy. And they'll say you don't, you're not willing to do work. It's the, it's the jungle. It's like, it, I don't know. May, that's the stuff that really gets to me. As bleak as as uh, as medicine can be, as difficult as doing the job itself can be, and as difficult as it can be to deal with these very emotionally charged situations, the justice is the problem. That's the stuff that really, it'll wear away at you in a way that's much more insidious than the other stuff. Because it's one thing to not believe that, like, good things can happen, but to then add to that, like, even if you wanted good things to happen, there's so many people who don't that you can't win. That's what that feeling is. It's not, it's like, there's a lack of hope and then there's a lack of lack of hope. It's the next level up. Or it's like, it's not even that you you don't have hope. It's that you feel as though hope is not a thing that can exist anymore. (laughs) So to come back to your original question, how are you feeling, Anoop? <laughs> and Samir, coming back to my original question, do you ever feel like if you just started crying, you would never stop? Oh, God, too bleak. Too sad. Too bleak, too bleak. But no, I, I will say, right, I, I think this podcast is certainly a production which I think will often straddle a line and often hop back and forth over the line of being, like, irreverent maybe to a... a point of someone could argue like mildly like it's mildly questionable to being extremely sincere 
um, and then flip back and forth like multiple times in the same conversation. And similarly discuss things that are super bleak and then also discuss things that are really positive. And I think a lot of what our thesis is, is to say, are there things that can be done from a systemic standpoint that can really not just improve your or my personal life or our experience in residency or our experience in medicine, but can really fundamentally improve that for a lot of people, for like their general resident cohort across the country or for people within medicine in general. And obviously not that we have a huge ability to make that impact, but just kind of us putting out ideas. And I think a lot of what you're discussing is that, right? The fact that I don't think, I mean, obviously you're a lot of your experience is institution specific, but a lot of what we're talking about is so widespread and that I think is what wears you down so much. And this really what, what, what can be really wearing down for me as well. And so admittedly, yeah, I think that is bleak, but I don't think it's dishonest. We recently as a department had a kind of a wellness uh, lecture, or wellness talk as our grand rounds. And there are some positives to it, certainly. It was by two, uh, I'm not sure what specialties, but certainly two MDs. And so I think they certainly at least had like context of like, it wasn't like some random person, you know, spouting off about something. Like they, they have understanding of, you know, residency and, you know, uh, and working within medicine. And at some point they kind of open up, this is all this over Zoom, of course, and, and, and they and, and they open up the floor to basically have people say like, what are things that lead to burnout and decreased wellness and decreased satisfaction? And people, a lot of people in the department, residents, faculty, had a lot of different things they kind of threw in there. And I think so much about what people were saying was this, it's a deep sense of frustration and lack of control and feeling that like no matter what you do, even when you try to suggest solutions, they're not coming. Um, and I think that's a lot of what I feel like we struggle against with this podcast too, right? Fundamentally, so many of our episodes are very much the same thing, right? I mean, we, we, we break it down to different topics, but a lot of them come back to very similar themes. And I think it's, um, it, it's unfortunate that that is the case, right? That, that we can't, despite everything, we can't really say like, this is a thing that we, are, we think will be valuable and it will change because I, I thus far haven't seen that. So I... So it's bleak, but I, I, I don't disagree with that outlook, necessarily. It's one of those things that requires a great deal of work done over a great deal of time by a great deal of people. A lot of people, but rule of threes, I had to say great deal again. Yeah, that's, that's a very reasonable <laughs> yeah. choice, I think. It requires effort by so many people caring over such a large period of time. And could the people listening to this podcast, could you and I be those people? Yes. We could. We could dedicate our lives to making the resident position and in turn the physician position uh, a better one going forward. But that would require a great deal of effort and time. And, and it would have to be the thing which you care about. Like I think I've said before, people can only care about so many things in their lives. And this would have to be whatever the one big three of, of things that you care about in your life. I think so many people after medical education, you know, once they become an attending, they don't want this to be their thing. Yeah. I mean, the thought of it's exhausting. It's exhausting, right? Because it's a game that you'd have to keep fighting. And at the end of that fight, things might be better. They also might not be better. And it's difficult to call people to action when you don't believe that things could be better, right? I mean, fundamentally, you can't call people to action if you don't believe that things could be better, right? If we look at history, everybody who, who called a group of people to action felt as though, like, yeah, that we're going to change things. We're going to make things better going forward. So hope is is fundamental to that change. And... 
what we see very often in residency training is a lack of hope, a, a, a training to be sort of complacent in your position so that even once you have power, you don't really fight as much as you could, right? I mean, there's a lot of attendings who probably all know this stuff. It's not as though these are all novel observations. It's just that they don't, you know, they have the choice to continue to care or they can, you know, go leave the hospital and spend time with their families and not think about it for. And they have their own new things that they have that they care about that are directly affecting their lives, too. Right. It's not all, you know, it's not all sunshine and roses or whatever the phrase is. And once you're out of residency. Right, right. And then there's a whole new set of problems to care about. And one of those things, those things directly affect you, whereas these things affect a person that maybe you used to be. Yeah. It's the same reason I've mentioned this analogy before, right? But I feel like everybody from the ages of 18 to 21 is like, the drinking age should be 18. It makes no sense. Like, it's very illogical. Like, you can smoke cigarettes when you're 18. You can go to the, you can go to war when you're 18. You can vote when you're 18. Like, why is drinking 21? And then you turn 21, you're like, why would I even give a shit about this anymore? <laughs> <laughs> the much more low stakes version of that. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, right, it's true, right? It's, I mean, yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I mean, 100%. It's a perfect, perfect metaphor. The problem is, I'll use another, another metaphor, which is like the concept of like education in America. A lot of people don't fight for it all that much because like maybe they don't have kids or they have enough money where they can send their kids to private school. So they don't think about like public education in America. But these issues are cyclical. And what happens when you don't invest in the first start of that step is you fundamentally compromise the progression of a system going forward, right? So... Essentially, what I'm saying is like residency is fundamentally compromised right now, and it's generating a group of people who are fundamentally compromised, and those people will only further give up ground because they're not trained to like fight. They're not, they're broken. They're, they're, they're hopeless in the sense that they lack hope. And so you put these people out, and these are your attendings of the future, and they're not going to want to fight for things. They're not going to believe that things can get better. And once you all systematically generate a group of people who don't believe things can get better, they're just going to focus on keeping what they have and not think about making things any better for themselves or other people, more importantly. COVID has certainly made that worse. And that is also a thing we are dealing with as a society, which is why I bring up education. I mean, we, we also have just groups of people who seem to believe that America was better at some nebulous point in the past than it is currently, despite all evidence to the other to the contrary. And we also have a group of people who don't want America to be any better because maybe they don't perceive the problems that we have as actual problems for themselves. Maybe they aren't problems for themselves. And moreover, we have large swaths of people who are apathetic. And that's residency, that's America, that's, that's the game nowadays. Yeah, I mean, no, no, no disagreement here. I, I'm just thinking through. This is this is episode 17. I, how, is, this is our low watermark. <laughs> That's yeah, yeah. I mean, it's bleak. Whatever. I, no, I think I think well summed up, honestly, and I think well done to broaden it as well to broaden our scope to beyond just residency. Because I I do agree with you. I think it's reflective of a lot of things currently going on, both within medicine as a whole and within society even more broadly. As good a place as any to end. Yes. Perhaps. Let me throw out one last thing. 
one last thing because this is the low point right uh and maybe i'm a person who's too enamored with narrative to to let things end at a low point you know people always hate the second movie in a trilogy because by definition it has to end at a low point right things can't be that much better because the end of the second act right exactly things have to be bad so that things can get better thereafter but this isn't a trilogy as you said this is episode 17 so i can end it however the fuck i want (laughs) Even if you are in a place in your life where you lack hope for things being better or society being better, to bring it back to sort of that that conversation we were having about spirituality, neither you nor I are particularly religious or spiritual people. So we both operate under the perspective that this is the one life that we have to lead, right? This is the one time you get to, this is your one go around on this particular planet, uh, after which you'll be jettisoned out to space. Uh, I mean, hey, did I vote for that law? No, but is it a law? Yes. So that's the space catapult. I feel like the space catapult is a waste of money, but you know, that's neither here nor there. I, you know, you have one life to live and you have a choice on how to live it and you could not fight and you could focus on yourself and you cannot improve the systems with which you are a part of. And that's fine. And I don't even necessarily judge you, but this is your one chance to make things better. If you don't, would you not be better for having said you tried? That's it. It's, just, it's all about trying, really. It's, it's, it, maybe nothing happens. Maybe nothing ever gets better. But if everybody operates on their lives thinking that things will never get any better, things will, by definition, never get any better. If you don't try, it definitely won't get better. If you do try, there is a small chance that it could get better. And there's a parallel there to the conversation we were having bo- earlier. I don't know. Pascal's wager for optimists, I guess. Yeah. You know, yeah. Might, as, might as well try. Yeah. This isn't the, quite the same as a dying person, admittedly. You know, we, we have... This wager is just society in general. Do you think the systems by which we live our lives are too far gone to be salvaged? Or do you think that there is something worth fighting for? I, I can't answer that question for anybody, but something to think about. Certainly. Well, anyway... We appreciate you guys listening. You can follow us uh, on social media, on Instagram at MWS Podcast. We are on iTunes amongst many other podcasting apps, and our website is linked on our various social media. You can also email us. You can also you can email always email us. Email. <laughs> you can always email us. Should say that's it's day one. You can also email us at mandatorywellnesssession at gmail.com, both with an idea for an episode, your thoughts on a recent episode, or... As we mentioned a few episodes ago, on one good thing that's happened to you recently. Might be nice to hear about in the middle of all this bleakness. And as always, our theme song was Nothing Slash Anything by Westy Reflector. Thanks for listening. Thanks. Thanks.